Did you know that slowing aging by a couple of percent would save more money than eradicating cancer? There are many reasons to be passionate about aging research, but this is perhaps the major one. To get out this message, we decided to start a podcast at VitaDAO. I'm Camille, also known as the Aging Scientist on Twitter, and I will be hosting this podcast. Today, I had the pleasure of talking to Alatin Kaya, who is a young investigator who recently started his lab at the Virginia Commonwealth University. He worked as a PhD and postdoc under Vadim Gladyshev in Harvard, and he's a close collaborator of Matt Caberline. His focus is on yeast as a model of aging, and he's just generally a very interesting and creative scientist, so I had a lot of fun interviewing him. All right, nice to see you. Nice to see you too, okay. Actually, I've never done a podcast before, so it will be fun. It's like my, yeah, my actually, first time. <laughs> yeah, my second time. I did a podcast with Lifespan IO. Do you know them? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I heard of them, yeah. Yeah, so the, I did. But it's not like... It, it was not face-to-face. -face. We did through the Twitter uh, space. That's the first time I use it. It was hmm. a little bit different, but this is my second time. But still, I'm really not that type of person of listening podcasts or those kinds of things so so i'm also pretty new no i'm sure we will have uh, a lot of fun so i i already started the recording just so we don't forget and maybe let me just uh explain a couple of things before we start i'm more of a mouse person and um but i will do my best <laughs> with these things no, I mean, it's, it's, it's not only, we will talk about yeast, but, you know, uh, aging, every organism has similar properties. So, so you will see, I mean, we, I'm sure you will help me. I will help you during this podcast. So it will be fun. Yeah. And um, we're aiming to be maybe a little bit different from most podcasts. I don't want to just ask monotonic questions. So maybe I'll talk sometimes myself, explain some things. Yeah. So. You can tell me to shut up if it's too much. No, no, no. It's all your control. I'm, I'm fine with any, anything you, you, you are the uh, leading here. Okay. Sure. No, no problem. And well, what else? I mean, we will just ask also some difficult questions just for fun. Um, mm -hmm. not to be like you know some maybe controversial things. Yeah, of course. Um, I like gonna... those. Yeah, yeah. Here, I'm here for fun. You know, discussion learning interesting thing i like controversial question i think in aging everything is controversial at this point to be honest so it's fun yeah let's see how it will be basically right however i'm prob probably the worst person to interview in a way uh, to interview you because uh, 10 years ago i told myself i'll never work with invertebrates but as it turns out, ironically, so recently I started getting into C. elegans and really enjoying the, the research. And maybe after this podcast, I'll also learn to laugh yeast. So maybe we, you can teach me the laugh for the yeast. Of course. Yeah, it's everybody loves yeast. But I should say that we also start actually working on C. elegans in the lab too. With, with Matt Keberlein's Keber help, we bring this amazing platform, Wormbot, into the lab. We are doing like this. We will talk about it. Essential gene screen, some drug screen. We are heavily also half of the lab is working on C. elegans model as well. Right. So, so we'll we'll definitely talk about um, the 
overexpression of essential genes that you're doing with, with Matt Caberline. Um, that's one of the major themes for today. And the second one will be like, um, we'll talk in general about the state of the field. Where is it going? How can we improve? And in between, I'll, I'll quiz you about yeast. And I, I, yeah, how does that sound? That sounds great, yeah. yeah. Okay, so um, before we start, one thing I noticed is that we, we both seem to have an Arabic name. Yeah, you're Alatine. Um, does the name have some meaning? Yeah, it's actually not Arabic. It's a Persian origin. And, and it's not Turkish. It's not very common name. Again, I, I only know one more person with the same name back in my country. My grandmother gave it to me, but I never able to ask her because she passed away a long time ago. I never asked her why you gave me this name, where it's coming from, right? But it has a little bit uh, uh, religious uh, meaning, although it's a little bit opposite of my character, but uh Allah in Arabic is means high place like close to God. Teen is a soul. So overall meaning is this is the soul close to God. Something like that. But but yeah, it's it's not describing me very well, but that's the uh, meaning of the name. And you know this funny uh, tale, yeah, uh, Aladdin, the magic lamp. Yeah. It's actually yeah. D. The origin in my name it's a little bit different two a uh a l a a t t a little bit change and double t and it's become a latin so a little bit different right. version i bet like do you get a lot of emails that totally misspell your name oh every time every time out of three emails i would say one is misspelling even the like last time i had a couple of email exchange with some nih uh, sro she sent me two email in both my name was wrong then she realized i'm so sorry i realized that last two email i always write down your name wrong it happens but to be honest at this point i really don't but people call me whatever they want i understand they are calling me so it's not a big deal for me and most of the people call my name surname kaya it's easier so yeah, it's kind of hard name, and even for pronunciation or even writing down, it's really hard. Uh, I was initially thinking actually maybe I should change my name, but then I stuck. I said, okay, everybody knows my name, so yeah, that's the curse of having a cool name. People ne can never spell it. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if it is cool, but yeah, I, at this point, yeah, some people. I got a lot of questions. Where is this name coming from? It, it attracts people' attention, right? So. So I uh, explain them. At the end, they will say, "Oh, I will stick with your surname, Kaya." So, yeah. Well, the surname is the most important one for the citation. So if you had a problematic exactly. surname, that might be a, more of a reason to change it. Exactly, exactly. And and your name again, also very common in my back in my country. But I, it's interesting. I learned you are from Poland. Then you are Polish, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, is it common name in Poland? Yeah, it's a very common Polish name. And then my Turkish friends told me it's a sort of Arabic Turkish yeah. name. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's Arabic and it's a lot. Yeah, uh, it's very common. I'm surprised to see that actually this name coming in Poland. I don't know where it came from. 
I mean, there was a lot of, in the Middle Ages, a lot of cultural exchange between the yeah. Ottoman Empire and Europe. So maybe there is some origin there. Yeah, Hard to say. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, yeah. So, well, we don't want to bore people too much with talking about names. Um, well, maybe we can jump uh, straight into the science. And uh, before we talk about your project, maybe we can briefly um, think, what, what do you think causes aging and what can we do to address aging? Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good question in the aging field, right? And I, I believe, although we have so much uh, 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 breakthrough in the aging field, we know pathways, some pathways modulated by aging or regulating aging, but still, I don't believe anybody can really say what causes aging, right? So we know the hallmarks now of aging, we know the pathways, but if you look in basic terms, aging is a time-dependent deterioration of system, right? It also appears on the phenotype, but that's a general like book term. What is aging? And and that's maybe the only description. What causes aging? Is is in my opinion, I'm not saying it's true. There are so many hypotheses of aging, right? There is no really law of the aging. So in my opinion, again, it's it's a, a cumulative damage, you know, there, there is, we, we are a system and then many different things deteriorate as a function of age and as a cumulative damage, that deterioration causes age. That's my thinking, but it can be completely wrong, it can be completely true, I don't know, there are different things. Of course, there are some factors might play higher role or, or like mitochondrial dysfunction is maybe more prone to deterioration with aging than the DNA repair that I believe. Uh, but overall, some point of DNA, DNA damage, some point of, of mitochondrial dysfunction, maybe proteostasis, everything at the end causes this deterioration and causes aging. Right, I, I, I totally agree. Damage is probably very important and no one really, really knows all the answers. Yeah. It's just good to have a framework for doing research, right? To have some idea of... Exactly. That's why I really like hallmarks of aging. You know, just <clears throat> till we describe these hallmarks of aging, everybody is focusing on different things, but somehow it's not exactly defining the cause of aging, these hallmarks, right? And there is a recent debate that, that there is a new paper discussing about this. So, but what it does, it actually brings the big picture into the aging field. And now people focus on these individual things and they start working on how these individual hallmarks interacting with each other when you look at the big picture. And before that, it was so separate. You know, some people were working completely mitochondrial function, proteostasis, DNA repair, telomerase, different things. Now we start understanding their interaction, how they interact as a cumulative, you know, they cause the cumulative damage and and affect the cellular aging. So I really like these hallmarks of aging, although again, it's not totally explaining the cause of aging, but it's very useful uh, uh, for us to work on different things and their interaction. Right. Uh, talking about the hallmarks, um, where do you think we made the biggest progress in addressing any of those hallmarks in the last 10 years or so? Yeah, I, again, aging field, what, what I track in the aging field is this, this field is progressing so fast. It's so exciting. Every, every new 
we have so much breakthrough. I mean, we will talk maybe a couple of them, but within a short time frame, we came to the point testing many uh, interventions on human clinical trials, right? And then it integrated many different perspectives of different fields, like it integrated with diseases, like now we call them diseases of aging, and then it integrated so many quantitative, and then, then now even the AI, you know, methods into the field. So we have so many breakthroughs, but I think one I really enjoy is uh, defining senescent cells, although it's still controversy. There are people showing that removing senescent cells, you know, help uh, uh, basically healthy aging and lifespan extension. But there are some other recent papers showing that at some point early on the early age, senescent cells are necessary for the organism. So we still don't know the exact biology, but I think targeting senescent cells with some cellonetics is very exciting. And of course, partial reprogramming, again, it's very early. I believe we really need to learn a lot in this field. I still believe it's it's somewhat not applicable. And 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 I still believe that it will it might cause some some side effect like tumor formation. It's still really a lot to learn from this, but reprogramming is very exciting. And I think another exciting thing is this methylation a a clock, you know, again, also, we don't know is it really measuring biological aging or not, but at least we have now biomarker, right? So we can track, we can look and and with these quantitative methods and, and, and computational biology tools, Having such this biomarker is very important testing any interventions, right? Any type of genetic interventions, chemical interventions, and we can quickly look at the methylation clock to see the effect. I think these three is very exciting, and I'm really excited about where rapamycin goes, you know, and and I'm really hopeful from this drug, to be honest, among the other drugs that we know. I think that's the best candidate so far. Maybe some people might argue metformin as well but i'm really happy now we start clinical trials on that i'm very excited to see what will be the result but i think these are the biggest breakthroughs but again there are many many different perspectives and i want to bring actually you ask so i was checking i think one of the underappreciated methods or or study is gene therapy in the age right so there is already other fields like rare diseases. There are some gene therapy methods can extend lifespan in the rare disease in the, uh, and it's very promising. There are a couple of papers coming, but I see that people really not too much focusing on this and I'm wondering why. And in the future, I really want a little bit jump into this field, but I think soon we might see some breakthrough examples from gene therapy as well. You raised so many interesting uh, topics. I don't even know where to start. Yeah, gene therapy is so interesting. It's just, it seems very difficult to test in mice because um, it's, it's so expensive, right? You have to prepare the vectors and everything. And usually studies are really small to test gene therapy. Yeah, that's one reason. But, you know, we, the more people work and then method will develop, new method will come. Like, I think somehow with the CRISPR technologies, maybe it might accelerate some of the method developments. I have some couple ideas, but I think it, it is also very promising. But again, it's among the other things. 
it's the, maybe the hardest and then and sample numbers are always small you know so but soon i think i know a couple biotech companies back in boston uh, working on this and there are a couple papers published in fact i really find yesterday night i was checking the literature on that i found one paper just published actually on the zebrafish they found this this what was it just a second and i i, I would really like to send you that one as well so it's a very interesting paper that showing that um, they found the enhancers you know uh uh for controlling the repair in the zebrafish you know so those enhancers then they take those enhancers and inject to the mammalian systems and they found that actually cardiac tissues has rejuvenated and that's based on gene therapy from zebrafish enhancers it works in the mammalian cells it's 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 really exciting and i want to send you that paper i'm sure it will take your you will like that and and so yes studies coming on this field but maybe there should be more focus on that field as well now everybody focusing on reprogramming right so yeah yeah and, and reprogramming is one of those things um it looks really promising uh, and then you notice often it, it will take like 10 or 20 years before we really figure out how promising exactly. it was just looking 10 years back sometimes it's not enough to judge exactly. uh judge a break yeah exactly but it's the the idea and then it's a very novel right it's a very novel idea even coming from this yamanaka factors and maybe another thing that still yamanaka factors is the only option we have but maybe some other factors if we can find this for reprogramming maybe some large-scale screens again we will talk also about screens but but that can accelerate the field and and again changing the cell identity with yamanaka factors i uh, still has a doubt on that in the system like like it might cause really some some unwanted side effects but again it's so early but it's very promising i have a question for you about reprogramming so before um before all the papers were published would you have thought that this can work or what, what would have been your general impression of that actually even when i was phd back in uh, uh vadim gladyshev's lab so we discussed it you know even before nobody was doing this so we were discussing we had a large lab uh, and uh, sometimes in the lab meeting we had discussions about this so i didn't think to be honest it will work Again, I'm not sure if it is working or not. Not much studies, right? So it needs more, more, uh, more data. But we discussed it. We said that how about if we, you know, somehow adjust the system in the whole organism? Can it reju rejuvenate the damaged organs? Can it can it rejuvenate the damaged tissues? And then can it help the healthy aging? Maybe even lifespan extension. But if this is the strategy, I was thinking organism would already adopt you know in the evolutionary terms if it's such a straightforward those transcription factors in our in mouse genome right so so i was thinking if something such a straightforward why evolutionary was not selected during aging why we don't see the higher expression of those those yamanaka factors right so if it is helping organism too much at some point aging is a little bit adaptive yeah it's too much stress on the any type of organism any type of cells so cells adapt i mean that's every cells adapt to stress and some of the factors we see in there as a hallmark of aging or pathways 
maybe it's an adaptive response to aging, right? So I was thinking these adaptive responses evolved since the beginning of the life. Aging is always there since the, even the individual cells aging, we know that starting from yeast. So I was thinking why there is no organism really using this strategy, at least we don't know, as a, as a compensatory or adaptive response to aging. So it means that there's something that might be harmful, but we'll see. Yeah, I suppose many people didn't believe this could work, yeah. but at the same time, it's kind of one of those moonshots and people always say in the, the field, maybe we need more moonshots, maybe we need to take risks, try something crazy. And well, maybe this is one of those and it was successful. Of course, right? I mean, without risk, I mean, science is, is risk. Yeah, without taking risk, you cannot really, without this, such these ideas are amazing ideas, right? And without trying, without, I, everything is risky at this point. We really don't know anything, even you think no risk, at the end can be risky, but that's why the beauty of the model organism coming, right? So aging field, I think, uh, benefited a lot from model organism. Yeast early studies, these fundamental studies of uh, biology of aging, think about how much yeast, C. elegans, drosophila contributed this field, right? Many pathways, many genes, many drugs, um, metabolites that initially identified in these model organisms. Now, the value of the mouse, right? So with this model organism testing, of course, I discuss sometimes they are saying that is think helping mouse lifespan gonna help human lifespan, right? We don't know, of course, you know, it may be mouse specific. Maybe it's helping mouse lifespan, although they are so isolated, so protective, you know, in the cage, controlled environment, and in human always exposed to stress, you know, we are interacting in a different way. We have different metabolic regulation, metabolic rate, even the aging rate is different. Of course, we don't know if it's mouse specific, but if the things working, in my opinion, from yeast to mouse, or it has a really high chance it will also work from mouse to human. So there are of course species specific aging regulators, but I believe that in fact, the studies already show that there is also conserved regulators of aging. And maybe this approach is one of the things that it will help uh, slow down aging and uh, uh, improve the healthy aging in human as well. Uh, but it's a moonshot. You are right, actually. It's a very, very novel uh, approach. Yeah, I mean, people criticize mouse work and other things, but we have to start somewhere and uh, different model organisms have, of course, their place. So there's a place for mice and there's a place for yeast. And I think you can do really cool, really outlandish things with yeast that are impossible in other organisms. And I think um, the work you're doing with the overexpression of essential genes is also a bit of a moonshot, a bit of a risky project. And maybe you can tell us a bit about yeah, so, that. Uh you know, in the aging field now, people now are very excited about this, 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 uh, uh, we come to a point, clinical trial start, we come to a point, lots of mouse studies going. So in the aging field, it's my opinion, of course, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but there is a tendency that, that ignoring the research or, or or ideas that can be tested in the model organs. Now we are in a point that even in the NIH level, you can propose anything with yeast, C. elegans, fly, any model organism, 
there is a clear things that in fact that's my experience even with this uh, uh, essential genes one of the reviewers said i'm exactly quoting entire aging field passed this type of studies you know that's one of the reviewers saying and i was really disappointed with this what do you mean entire aging field passed this not entire i'm in the aging field and i didn't pass this type of studies right so so there is a tendency ignoring these non-mechanistic studies you know and and everything is become mechan of course mechanism is important to understand but before we come to the mechanism first we need to find the regulators then understand the mechanism then apply in the maybe mouse then think how applicable in the human even the higher eukaryote. this is how the science progress starting from simple idea till coming to the application or clinical trial but now everybody focusing on this regeneration rejuvenation partial reprogramming all this screening early days of the aging that we gain a lot we identify pathways genes so then we come point that i was thinking okay with this genome sequencing this uh, high throughput sequencing and then and then omic studies we work a lot of non-essential gene function right we screen knockout library in yeast sirna library in in c elegans but there isn't really not much study about essential gene only one study published i think early days of 2005 maybe by gary raucon's lab they screen the essential genes which is not important in the adulthood like essential during the development but not essential in the adulthood they look at the uh, lifespan effect of knockdown but okay again it's come to the knockdown and then another point nobody looked the overexpression knockout or knockdown is a, not a strategy i think because in the nature we always see gene duplication right gene duplication increase overexpression lots of gene to gene duplication events but it's very rare to lose the gene so it means nature is doing it for some strategy maybe for coping with the stress stress or or other factors so i said that why not we look at the overexpression of the essential genes both overexpression and essential genes really overlooked and then we get of course this is the best model become the tool is like overexpression library is available right and i apply to uh this nathan shock center in university of washington uh, matt keberlein uh, was the director so he really liked the idea and and we got some uh small amount of money for pilot study we did it it's and it's amazing it come and at first i did this screen and we get around 30 percent lifespan extension out of 100 pilot research pilot screen right and it's impossible like they then independently they did it and they also get almost similar number 25 30 percent and it was amazing because if you look at the knockout or knockdown library from c elegans or east you get only three percent genes that extending lifespan so it directly showing that essential genes are maybe selected during evolution because they don't accumulate mutation they are highly conserved from yeast to human maybe because they are conserved aging is conserved maybe they evolved in parallel some of the function of the essential gene evolved in parallel to adaptation to aging and our result indicate that in fact we didn't publish yet but we have also c elegance now we are doing in the lab we are screening those essential genes, which is also conserving. We see the same result. So far, we tested six of them. 
and we see four of them extend lifespan. It's a really high rate. Those six extend lifespan in yeast, and we test out of this. First of all, we screen hundreds, right? And we randomly select six. We test in the C. elegans, four of them still extending. It's a really amazing consistency, meaning that something with essential genes might be important in terms of regulating lifespan and aging. That's a really amazing finding. So, so basically, to sum up, you overexpress essential genes in yeast, and you get almost an order of magnitude more often lifespan extension than people do in knockout studies. Exactly. So that that's amazing. That's if it holds in a larger data set, this will yield so many exactly. new genes. That's the thing. You know, we only screen hundred. Actually, we just finished another hundred in the yeast, two hundred. And then we uh, we made lots of uh, uh, construct for C. elegans. Now we start injecting. In my lab, we are a new early C. elegans lab. Now we learn injection, selection, overexpressing, because there is no tool for C. elegans to do such these high throughput screens, but we can inject. You know, you are a, a warm person. So we are selecting lots of work overexpressing these genes. And then we will also, in parallel, we will do in the warm. But the problem here, fun right so i apply i think as an early investigator i really like this idea and and this study needs to be done but again i submit this uh, this 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 proposal to nia uh three times there is always one reviewer highly disagree like common common problem there is no mechanism it's a fishing you know of course it's a screening it's fishing we agree and it's no mechanism, yes, but look at the preliminary data. It's so promising. The next stage is looking at the mechanism, right? We need to start at some point. And now we are out of funding. So because, you know, C. elegans injection, selection, creating libraries, a lot of money. And, and I'm looking for a funding to push this project. Hopefully, I will. I, I'm not still uh, gave up. I will still... Uh, uh, submit this grant to NIA, some some maybe uh, uh, association funding, but we will see where it will go. I'm curious about the funding situation here. So um, I, I watched Matt's talk at ARDD about the project, and I also checked out the paper, and I think you got some funding from yeah. Impetus as well on top of what yeah. you have. Um, so did this help? Oh, and yeah, like, it's amazing. I mean, look. I opened my lab just before COVID came, right? And then I had my K grant. It helped a little bit. Then I had my startup. But at the same time, you know, uh, it, it was my dream to have a lab at the same time working in different aspect of aging, different model. So we bring yeast, we start elegance, we start uh, a mammalian cell culture. Also, even we have mouse model in the lab. Now we are working. But anyway, research is expensive, especially after COVID everything double up more expensive right so startup money set up the lab hire phd students is gone k grant is not much money and and i was looking for uh, uh of course funding i submit many grants to nia i never get a luck so my studies always criticize lack of mechanism basic thing lack of mechanism lack of mechanism luck and i really don't like it you know mechanism is important i agree but there should be some, some studies without depending on how many mechanisms proposed in any grant actually being true or really being studied. There is a reality, right? Uh, 
So that's NIA or it's a common trend in the aging field. We should really get rid of this this mentality, right? Even I submit small grant R21, which is a which is an exploratory grant. But again, I I've been criticized. I, again, I'm quoting. The the aims are uh, uh, primarily exploratory. I mean, this is exploratory grant, right? So it's really I'm I don't know maybe I'm I'm young I have not much experience every time I talk people they say keep pushing submit submit I will do that but from the NIS perspective I'm really struggling at that moment and and impetus came it was really great Matt and I submit for essential gene we get some money and I also submit another grant to impetus for understanding the uh, uh mitochondrial uh genetic background on how it affects the lifespan i got some money that helped a lot and i really appreciate that such a nice concept of fast grant you know two pages and i submit i got the money that helped a lot i cannot describe how much help i get from this impetus as a young investigator new lab it accelerate and it helped many things in my lab actually so so that was an amazing experience for me. Yeah, and Impetus is not not the only um, such such organization. So recently, there have has been a lot of this non traditional funding happening in the aging field, and it's it's pretty yeah. cool. So we have of course Vita Dao and Evolution recently. So Vita Dao is funding of course more smaller projects, and Evolution is funding. Um, or hopes to fund a lot of large projects that are promising but were rejected by the NIA. So I guess you yeah. can so, definitely try with them yeah, as well. I try, actually, I'm, I'm following them, right? For uh, Again, for Evolution, so far they announced, I think, two or three uh, uh, calls. But one of them, again, they said that, you know, none of them is applicable for early stage investigators. Look, they are really targeted. They say if you get the NIA percentile between 10 and 15, it is, you know, and and it's, I don't know how many type of 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 proposals over there. They really targeting promising, you know. They are not taking risk. That NIA like, but it's on the border. We can also propose another thing. They said, if you are, uh, if you have more than three papers, and if you have less than ten years, and and come on, I mean, for me, I'm third year lab. If you count the COVID, actually, it's two years, and I don't think any people open the lab has already three papers. I mean, there are some labs, of course, and I'm going to uh, actualize just uh, in the process of submitting more manuscript. But they are targeting, they are targeting that non-risky people, non-risky projects. But that's the thing, we need to target risk project, risky people. That people doesn't have to really be in the aging field. It can be still, if it's idea, it can be still funded. You know, just needs to be a little bit risk taking. And and other uh, non canonical uh, association like there, mostly I'm checking. They really into reprogramming. They really into like a research that can be really translational. So my research at this point, I don't have really a point that can be immediately translational. They don't too much fund that such these studies again. There is really no grant funding that really will fund this, for example, essential gene screen because it's a fishing. Yeah, it's no mechanism. I don't know actually at this point. I want to discuss maybe later with you, Vitada. I, I heard it, 
But I really don't know how the mechanism, what kind of proposal they they fund, and I'm not sure. But I I'm happy to discuss. But overall, it's a great things actually. You know, other than NIA or NIH having all these different mechanisms funding the aging research, that's a great thing for aging field. It will accelerate a lot of funding within next ten year. I'm expecting maybe more human clinical style uh human clinical trials and then and then maybe more breakthrough funding especially advancement of this reprogramming maybe some other things you know just senescence removal gene therapy these are really uh, again you described moonshot and i think with this funding we will really accelerate those research and we will understand how useful for for or are they really applicable to human or or what is the uh, 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 mechanism? What are the consequences? So these fundings will accelerate all these uh, breakthroughs. I, I can I can see why it would be hard to get money for basic science. Everyone wants translation all the time, but uh, someone has to has to find the basics. But we even don't know what causes aging, right? So without basic science, we will not understand this i mean people completely ignoring now basic biology of aging but that's what how we start this aging field right we start asking these fundamental question we use this model organism now we came to this point you cannot ignore back and saying that everything translational now if you cannot define what causes aging you cannot really be targeting really clinical uh, clinical trials without knowing knowing the cause of aging. So we still need this basic biology of aging research. But unfortunately, I mean, there is a trend in the field that ignoring that 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 type of research. But I'm hoping with with new people, new mentality, new funding agencies, it will be changing soon. I, I guess um, you would say your work was a bit of a pilot, right? But is there already something uh, useful that you learned from the assortment of genes that you found yeah, that of worked? Of course. I mean, uh, we completed 100 and then we completed another 100. Now we are analyzing data. One one thing very striking to me, at least based on the just, just looking, uh, splicing, actually. You know, even though yeast has very limited number of genes that has intron, but still we see many splicing genes are really compensating or putting back or overexpressing those genes, really helping lifespan extension. And of course, there are recently actually start people looking at these splicing factors. Will Mayer lab has a couple papers and other papers from different organisms coming, how important this splicing retention is important, you know. So, so intron retention increase as a function of aging. So it means that the, this, Splicing mechanism also might be deteriorating as a function of age. And we see that these splicing factors are really, really important, might be important regulator or or important target of uh, of aging. Another thing we find is actually the, the actin, actin-related genes. Somehow we don't know too much, but seems like regulating the actin dynamic in the cell is is important i mean our essential gene saying that another is we found that iron sulfur cluster many of them is essential right so somehow it's amazing that how many iron sulfur genes coming from our screen 
as a positive hit. So we are focusing also this perspective, what's how iron sulfur cluster, so many genes using iron sulfur cluster as a cofactor, right? And then it's also important for mitochondrial function, even DNA repair genes, many, many different things. But in the even in the literature, there is not much study showing iron sulfur fun, uh, cluster regulation and then iron sulfur cluster homeostasis, how it helps the aging, we really don't know. But those are the main three things coming from our study, splicing, actin dynamic, and iron sulfur cluster genes. I would not have expected the splicing, although we, we do know that it's, of course, important in mammals. Introns are retained in older mammals and splicing is dysfunctional. But I always had the impression like yeast and C. elegans, they have very yeah, few introns and much less complex yeah. ones. Yeah, but still, even in the yeast, I think less than C. elegans, but it's still coming, actually. And of course, it uh, in, a, uh, in parallel, we also find this mRNA degradation genes, right? So when we overexpress those those genes which eliminate the some you know uh, mrna which is not properly synthesized overexpressing of those eliminating those mrnas helps a lot so we have those genes in parallel to the splicing factors really uh, i think it's a very interesting finding that and especially as you said in yeast not much splicing uh, uh, intron genes intron containing genes seeing this already promising maybe in the higher like mouse and human this might be a really important factor in the older age to target yeah and and did you say you saw genes that are important for the removal of mrna yes exactly uh, uh, we have this mrna quality control genes you know mrna can be translated but most of the time it can go wrong yeah translation can go wrong so so sorry transcribed uh, mRNA can be transcribed and then it can be wrong. So, so those mRNAs, I think, before translation should be eliminated because translating the, the, those mRNA, which is not transcribed properly, turning into protein might cause really a lot of damages in the older age. And then we know that autophagy decreased, proteasome decreased, right? Those things. I think the first line of the defense in this perspective is eliminating those. Uh, those mRNAs, which causing these defective proteins. So when we overexpress those mRNA quality genes, we see a really great uh, lifespan extension. So most of those mRNAs actually, like those, some of the genes targeting these these intron containing mRNAs, right? So it means that in the aging, somehow those introns are not properly removed, and then. What happens that these mRNA uh, quality control genes eliminate those intern retaining mRNAs, so they are never being translated into proteins. I think that's the me thing mechanism we are thinking. So first line of the defense is eliminate those those mRNAs. Second line, if it is translated, of course, then proteasome, right? Quickly eliminate those proteins. So that's our thinking, at least. This was exactly what I wanted to ask. Yeah, I was wondering if there's a link between the mRNA degradation and if it might be degrading uh, mRNAs that have retained introns yeah. and things like yeah, that. Yeah, we have some genes that that's exactly targeting those things. So it already give an idea that that that's what happening. Of course, it could be very interesting to study what happens to those proteins if they containing intron, you know, and then uh, they basically they are translated 
what kind of protozoan mechanism targeting them? Is ubiquitin dependent? Ubiquitin independent? There are different types of protein protease systems, right? So what happens in them? Are they aggregating more? Are they staying in the cell more than non-intron containing proteins? Because I evolutionarily I expect that intron containing those proteins may not be selected. So their protease efficiency might be lower for the mistranslated proteins which has intron than some other mistranslated proteins which has no introns, you know. So because intron is there, maybe it's not fitting the somehow the maybe proteasome system not targeting them properly or or less efficiently. So it can be really neat studied in terms of the, in older age, look at the protein aggregation. If intron containing proteins has higher retention time in the cell than non-intron containing those misfolded or oxidized proteins. It can be really interesting to study. That's a very fascinating finding. I think mRNA control is somewhat neglected in the aging field. So looking forward to your follow-up. Yeah, that's that's one field we want to go, I mean. But we also really excited about this iron silver cluster again. Like we have really interesting findings and actin. People already know actin dynamics is important for many different things. It's a signal actually, you know. Actin globular actin versus filament actin, very dynamic. It can regulate many, many different things, although we still don't know too much about it. And again, it's also really neglected in the aging field. So we have a couple findings, but but we really don't know where to go in this. But we are more most focusing on this, this, this mRNA degradation pathway and iron sulfur cluster at this point. But we have many different genes, you know in different pathways. Hopefully we will complete this entire set of thousand genes, which has conserved from yeast to human. And then we will really look at the big pictures, how many different things. Overall, it's very exciting. I hope somebody really understand this excitement and importance of this research. But again, I mean, we 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 really need a funding to, to chase these questions, so. Yeah, I love your study and I think you're still you're understating um, why it's so important even. So uh, maybe I can try to frame it. So, and this leads me like to my next yeah. question. So, um, and well, I hope I'm not paraphrasing incorrectly, but I think Matt Caberline was suggesting in a way that our field has this problem that we have a lot of therapies that kind of work, but they all have a rather narrow mechanism that is similar, like they're similar to CR, they are CR mimetics. And then we have a lot of therapies or, or interventions that have a very low effect on lifespan. And we don't have many novel mechanisms. And this is where the study comes in, right? We really need novel mechanisms that have a high impact. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I really like Matt Keverline. Unfortunately, everybody heard now he's he's living academy, right? So so it's it's unfortunate. I mean one thing that I really have very similar thinking of him, like he's he's really looking at the aging field from different perspective. He's not stuck uh, stuck in with already known mechanism, you know. But many people do that. Many people work on, you know, protein restriction, color restriction. Yeah, these are good. We still need more study, but these are, we we really still don't know many things about aging, right? We really still discover more genes more metabolites, more different, he called this dark matter of aging, unknown things, right? One thing is unbiased screens, and that's what we are doing. And, and he's completely right. I mean, 
we cannot stop at this point thinking that we know everything about aging. Let's focus on what we found. That completely will stop the aging field. We will not progress anymore. Yes, somebody needs to take these what you found into the translational perspective, but some other group still needs to work on this. What is the unknowns? You know, what those unknowns, how are they connected with the nodes? Are they really unknowns, unknowns? Because everything comes with torn. Whatever longevity genes you look, oh, this is TOR related. This is color restriction at least some point also related with TOR regulation. So everything coming to that, everything coming to TOR. That's why rapamycin is very promising target uh, uh, drug. But we really don't find new, new regulators of aging. And the only way is screening. But again, he also mentioned, if we listen to his podcast, he said that none of the screening studies will be funded they will first thing they will say no mechanism and second thing this is fishing and he's right and i get those criticism as well so i'm hoping that there will be really a mentality like there are still really people valuing such these type of studies and it's likely they'll be to to match those people they are reviewing your grant and they got the importance of this and then you get funding but but I'm not giving up. I'm still pushing it. But thank you. I mean, it's I think I agree. This is a very important study. Somebody needs to do this. And I'm happy to that we are doing it, you know, just. Yeah, it's good that someone focuses on the concept of overexpression. I mean, if you just look at the mouse models that we have that are robust, like almost all of them are knockouts and almost all of them inhibit growth in one way or another. So it's almost all the same thing. And of course, they might lead to clinical breakthroughs, but at some point we need new oh, mechanisms as well. And many knockouts, even from C. elegans or yeast, you see that they extend lifespan, but their fitness is very low, you know. so. That's that's a trait. I mean, yeah, you extend lifespan, but again, gene knockout is not a way. We cannot go knock out any gene. You know, we can like we can target the activity. Again, example, rapamycin targeting tor decreased the activity. We see lifespan extension. That's a great way. I mean, coming from the gene knockout or siRNA screen, but many of them is really really low fitness. I don't know in the nature if it work. And then again, in the nature, we see lots of gene duplication, gene duplication, gene duplication, nature doing it. It means there is some, some advantages compared to the losing the gene. Yeah. So we want to mimic that and we will see it. I mean, nobody work on this field, nobody really focusing on essential gene, nobody really focusing on overexpression the gene. And, and that's already novelty, right? Nobody doing, we are doing, that's a novel approach. And the preliminary data is very promising. That's why we are excited. And I should say that actually this study like wouldn't be a possible even with, with support from uh, Matt Keberlein, you know, he's, he's a, he's a really great researcher in the aging field. And he's the first person really supporting me, saying me that, wow, this is a great idea, you know. So he helped me to get this warm boat and then he, he got this pilot research in the Nathan Chuck Center and then that starts. So there is all uh, my point is there are still people in the aging field valuing such these types of studies and I'm hoping to meet more of them. I'm hoping to get more support of them and push this research forward basically. Yeah, going forward, we can hope that all the reviewers will be like Matt.
That would be great. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's hard. I mean, of course, everybody has their own own thinking in the aging field, right? But there is also common things. I mean, I agree. But unfortunately, I, I kind of feel that if if your hypothesis or if your research doesn't really match with the hypothesis or thinking of the reviewer, he already ignored that. That shouldn't be like that. There should be common sense in the aging field. Is this proposal really helping aging field other than your thinking? Yeah, that's the what we are missing. I mean, when I review the paper or, or read proposals, I never think that, oh, I'm thinking this, this is completely wrong. I'm thinking in the aging field or in any field, is this really uh, studied? Is this really novel? You know, it if it is, it's of course risky, but if it brings some interesting finding, will the field really benefit from that? But I hope people like this mentality, but unfortunately it's not. I mean, and and I'm learning. I Again, this is my third year as a PI. I'm struggling, I'm learning, but this is a learning curve. You know, hopefully, I don't know your, your future, if you want to have your own lab or if you want to stay in the academia. This is a challenging field, but it's fun, I should say that, you know. All these challenges, I'm growing, I'm learning. As a scientist, you are not only being scientist, actually, yeah? So you're also learning how to target this funding mechanism, how to write proposal, how to target each funding mechanisms, how to train people in the lab, how to teach. So it's, it's overall really fun. I'm really enjoying it, uh, but but it's very challenging and it's very hard. And, and it's a learning process. I'm still learning. There is no question that as a young investigator, I always need a support. That's that's the reality. You know, I'm learning still. I'm I'm learning never finish. And 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 I'm I feel lucky to have a couple people around me supporting me, valuing my ideas, giving me feedbacks. Those are really incredible people that without them, I mean, think that all your grant is being rejected, nobody valuing your ideas, you will be really depressed. But I'm lucky to have such these people around. Yeah, I mean, I, I love all the projects that Matt Cabellan touches, like the dog aging project, the worm bot, the overexpression. He's like, he's involved in so many things. It's it's amazing. So, and yeah, there are several people. I mean, he's great and, and like this way, but unfortunately, again, he's also, a little bit, I think, uh, my understanding, I don't know, of course, with the funding mechanism, not, not funding this, this screening, everything. So he's going a little bit industry. I feel upset that he's, but he's still, of course, in the aging field, he's supporting people. But those people should stay. In my opinion, those people should stay in academia, has has get real funding. I mean, and yeah, but, but the system is changing. You know, so many people, going this this the startup companies because aging field is blooming now right everybody's there on idea with all these funding mechanism it's good i mean i don't know if any other field is such this lots of startup within five years actually i don't know how many startups in the aging field now out there doing different perspective of aging that's great because funding mechanism is different in the in the startup there are more money without uh, uh, with this more funding you can really accelerate your idea and do many things so it's good but losing those such these people also a little bit upset yeah 
but but i hope like that startups can also do research even if it's translational and that they can be more fluid and people can be going in and out of academia doing startups and coming back well i hope that's the kind of future we're yeah, looking yeah, at yeah that will be great actually yeah. I, I don't know within next 10 years what will happen, uh, but but in this field, I really expect so many breakthroughs coming, so many find, new findings coming. I mean, we understand more of biology of aging. At least we have a couple drugs that people start using, you know, like, like again, a couple candidates we already know out there, and I think people oh so so many people i know already using some of those drugs so we will be in a point that people start using drugs to make healthy aging right first of all not only living long this is the important point uh, like healthy aging is more important than living long so so there is already good candidates out there and i think within 10 years we will have more candidates those analytics coming you know from other other companies rapamycin coming metformin trial other, you know, there is acarbos. We have really good, and I, I believe those metabolites has our best shot at this point, more, more direct way. And next coming maybe reprogramming and then gene therapy. And then, and then we will see how it will be. But it's very exciting now to be in the aging field. Yeah, it's not like the clinical pipeline is empty, yeah. but we still want more basic research to find new mechanisms. And actually, one thing that I did, do not understand about the screening strategy of people that um, you kind of would like to avoid finding things that are just CR mimetics or decreased growth. So I have a question for you, and maybe it's a stupid idea. <laughs> Um, why do people not screen like in mutants that are already long lived that already have a CR phenotype and see if they can still increase lifespan in this? Is this something you've ever considered? Actually, or... you know, that's another second stage. First of all, I think there are some people doing that, right? They are looking, for example, ideas you get the either drug which mimetic CR or mutant, which like the pathways is associated with CR mechanism and they try to look uh, uh, another pathway that independently extend lifespan. One thing that we need uh, uh, more genetic tools in yeast double knockout, right? You get, for example, we have a, a genetic model of a CR hexakinase 2. It's a glucose transporter. If you knock out, less glucose goes into cell, cell lives exactly like the CR. Now, in fact, in our study, my second stage of the aim is get this hexakinase mutant, which lives already long, and put these essential genes, you know? So in the second stage, in fact, that was one of the aim in our proposal. We said, we'll get this hexakinase 2 mutant, CERT2 overexpression, some of the proteasome genes, which extend lifespan, many, many different hallmarks. We choose a mutant, which is related one of the hallmarks of aging. And we said, we will screen our essential gene expression in these mutants to see we have a synergic lifespan extension. Yeah. So another approach could be we have single knockout or single siRNA in the world, double siRNA or double knockout. I think with this CRISPR, I think there is already a knockout library in the world. If I'm wrong, I'm I'm not sure. But with this CRISPR, I think within next couple of years, we will see that this knockout library is coming, double knockout library. So plus this hexakinase, each individual genes can be deleted and be screened. But again, it's a knockout, you know. Uh, I don't know what can you learn. At least you can learn some mechanistic studies working independent of CR. So 
there is because of this tool missing tool not many people doing that and and this type of study second funding again i think the major issue is funding nobody gonna fund these type of studies right so if you don't have funding of course you cannot do research that's the major thing i think why nobody doing that's the major major obstacle that people does avoid this screening because nobody likes it to be honest yeah so funding and lack of tools yeah, lack of i'm wondering about the tools so i think the wormbot is helping a lot as a high throughput tool for c elegance but for you how are you doing the screenings do you still have to manually yeah. count cells the, the yeast cells in, and... yeah wormbot is great i mean we have one in the lab for for worm screening yeah in yeast there's also technologies actually like microfluidic right maybe you heard that but the problem is that so many microfluidic study is uh, papers publishing. Unfortunately, the thing is that if you look at those people who publish, only they use those. There is no microfluidic like Wormbot available you can take, incorporate into. We try. I mean, we try several published microfluidic uh, templates, and in our hand, many of them not work as described. Right. So, so really, there is something wrong. I mean, they, they do this microfluidic, it were in their hand, it were great, in our hand, it doesn't. So it's very uh, tricky. It's uh, still really early stages of development. And and also data analysis is at some point still manual as well. There are although a recent paper showing that uh, uh, machine learning based automated screening uh, of this microfluidic chamber, I think that's also field I'm hopeful soon there will be a like really a yeast tool like this worm bot, maybe yeast bot, you know, accelerating. But at this point, we have two methods. One is manual, this 200 manual screen, which is the best approach. You know, the 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 it's unbiased. The the error rate is really low. You get really good uh, hits. But we are collaborating from University of Washington with. Dunha, Maitreya Dunha, they are developing a new, not microfluidic based, but it's a chamber. They call it aging chamber. It's, a, it's published by initially by Calico Lab from Isaac, uh, I forget his name, but now they are adopting this chamber for high throughput screening. They attach the yeast in a chamber which is well aerated, well mixing with biotin labeled, and they can't the daughter cells it's better than better than uh definitely better than microfluidic and it's very promising that's another method we do parallel this method and manual so we are very hopeful and with this method we can mix all the all these overexpression strains and we can look at the daughter retention and mother retention with the sequencing and then see uh, with uh, some mathematical uh, uh formula we can calculate the lifespan. Of course, we need to validate in the manual, but seems like it's working well based on the published data. We are also applying that method as well currently. You raise a lot of interesting points here, and I wish I wish I could address all yeah. of them. But let me maybe pick one for kind of our last topic briefly. So, so you mentioned that sometimes it's hard to replicate. People have this beautiful microfluidic yeah. platform, yeah. and then people cannot replicate it. 
Do you think in general the field has a problem with replicating things? Is there a real replication crisis in our field as well? In aging field, I think it's it's in every field, to be honest, not only aging field. One thing that the methods really need to be described well. I mean, that journals should be, you know, there's temptation on the methods, although some journals now, everything ask all the methods in the supplementary, everything. So uh, there's this replication crisis in every field i'm sure in aging field as well right but also especially in the aging field you know background of the mouse yeast c elegance you use condition you use temperature these are all environmental factors affecting aging right so so it should be really really precisely if you try to replicate you need to really replicate the original published method exactly the same right so that's one reason maybe and second reason of course there are studies not handled very well and published without really good enough uh, uh biological replicates and out there that can be that can be the second reason for microfluidic yeah there is a big thing in the field i mean i can easily count maybe 20 different labs publish this microfluidic right but look each of them none of nobody use other than themselves these microfluidic machines first of all it's not really because they if you look at the method it's so many small things that we cannot really adjust in our lab second i don't know the data they describe over there we never able to replicate in in my lab at least so we gave up focusing on microfluidic we are hoping that soon there will be really a nice publication from labs that's trying to develop this microfluidic uh, in an easy way like like not that complex and i know a couple of people working on that it's easier to manufacture that microfluidic less details more efficient so we will see but yeah there is no really i will say at least i don't trust most of the uh, uh, microfluidic machines out there yet but this aging chamber dunham lab is developing also very promising and and there might be other other technologies coming for yeast but so far major things is manual tetra dissection which is taking time but less error rate so we have at least two things here that we could fix so one is like people don't document very well method sections are too short exactly. and people yeah just don't write everything they yep. did so that's one yep. thing right second thing technology is available on their lab how they manufactured on small details yeah. nobody can do that that's why replication is impossible and and third i'm not saying that there is some data which is not correct out there that's possible you know just but also you know in aging field uh, again the the background of the organism that we try anything is very important i understand that and and in mouse you know we have now that that you had mouse you know that they they the genetic heterogeneous mouse that's great i think everybody should use everybody start with this c50 black mouse you know so i think that's a very homogeneous genotype over last 30 50 years whatever so if you try on this mouse and then another that never work everybody should use these these models even in the worms everybody's stuck with n and two i think there are wild worms already available from worm genetic we try to bring these wild yeast models, you know, collected directly from nature with really different uh, uh, genotypes, although they are all budding yeast species, but we saw that they live 
shortly, longly. So we try some of the funding in the in the labs when we try in them. So there are many things that can be addressed in the aging field for this uh, perspective. Yeah, there's still so much we can do. Our work is cut out for us. I mean, there is still a lot to do. And um, thanks for yeah raising so many interesting topics. And thanks for for being on our, our podcast. Yeah, I appreciate for the invitation. It was it was yeah, great. I appreciate. Thank you for the invitation, and it was great. I mean, to talk. Yeah, uh, I'm happy. It was really yeah. fun. Yeah. All right. Let us do a quick review of the podcast. There are too many interesting things that we talked about, but I think we did a good job covering several aspects. And maybe I can just comment on three points in addition to the podcast. So regarding funding in general, we didn't quite get to the bottom of it. It seems like there is still not enough funding, despite recently having impetus grants, despite Vita Dow and the Evolution Foundation uh, promising to fund a lot of research. It seems like the field still lacks funding, especially for basic research. Of course, recently there has been a lot of interest in like translational biogerontology and a lot of money has been funneled into biotech companies like Altus is of course one name that comes immediately to mind but getting basic research funded is still an issue and I think many people would argue that we need one big breakthrough in the field to make it more attractive both for investors and for governments as well to show that it can be really done that we can really slow aging and then we would get a tremendous increase in funding. So the question is, what would be the best candidates for, for such a study that could prove that the field of biogerontology or geroscience is mature and able to deliver? There is the TAME study, for example, where uh, metformin will be tested in somewhat healthy middle-aged participants to see if it can slow age-related diseases. I think there's a lot of promise in TAME or TAME-like studies. Um, this would be a remarkable proof of concept if it worked. And of course, the other avenue is something like the dog aging project by uh, that is was initiated by Matt Kabbaline. The idea is to show that you can use a drug to slow aging in dogs. And these are, of course, much longer lived than mice. And perhaps once people see this, there would be mounting pressure on regulators and politicians to actually invest in aging research because it would seem more real if it works in, in such a long-lived species that is also, of course, very dear to many people. And then we would, of course, solve the problem of having too little funding. And without funding, you, of course, cannot attract top talent, which is a complaint that you often hear about aging research. But it does go hand in hand. You don't have funding, you may not have top talent, and there's not much you can do about this. Regarding the overexpression work, it is not just the overexpression of essential genes that is interesting. It's just the whole concept of overexpression that is quite neglected in the field. Let me perhaps give you two examples, FGF21 and metallothionines. So FGF21 is a circulating hormone that is involved in protein sensing. And not long ago, there has been a paper showing in mice that if you overexpress FGF21, so you produce FGF1 transgenic mice, this leads to very robust and very strong lifespan extension. However, such papers are still very rare. 
and there was very little follow-up that I could see of FGF21 in, in the geroscience field. Most studies in mice that, that work on um, some sort of transgenic mice, they usually look at knockouts. And we have so many dwarf mice that have different defects in the growth hormone IGF1 axis, but these are usually loss of function mutations. And they're all very similar because ultimately they affect nutrient signaling. And we're just not getting anywhere with overexpression in mice. And hopefully, ultimately, the work by Alatin can give a boost for, for the whole field to, to just try more and experiment more with overexpressing pro-longevity factors. Then the other story is, of, co of course, metallophionines, which are very dear to my heart because I used to work a bit on these proteins. So it, it is a gene family of small proteins that are cytoprotective and involved in multi-stress resistance. And of course, as we all know, um, long-lived species do tend to be resistant to different kinds of stressors. And many people think that this multi-stress resistance, partly mediated through NERF2, is of course a key anti-aging mechanism. And there are actually metallophionine transgenic mice, which have been um, tested by my colleague and mentor Marco Malavolta, and they're also one of those long-lived transgenic mouse models. But again, it's a very neglected field. And as Alatin said, essential genes or just genes in general during evolution often undergo duplications and develop new functions. And this is indeed what we suggested or speculated is happening with metallophionines because long-lived species do tend to have more metallophionine genes. So there might be a reason for this that, of course, is their longevity, but we still do not know for sure. And this is something that Alatin did not mention, but I read in one of his papers that, of course, you have to adjust for phylogenetic effects. Just because something is increased in long-lived species doesn't necessarily mean that there is a clear-cut correlation with longevity. Perhaps the most famous example would be something like brain size, which is obviously higher in primates, and primates are long-lived. So it could look like brain size is correlated with species longevity, but this could simply be because primates are long-lived and large brain sizes are a typical trait for primates. And we're still at the stage where we don't know whether this is the case for metallophionines or not. But I, I think it's conceptually uh, linked to, to the overexpression work we were discussing with Alatin. Finally, we also talked about the replication crisis. We mentioned that poor reporting of methods often limits reproducibility. Also, the fact that machines or reagents may not be available or made available to other researchers. Uh, one thing we did not discuss in much detail is, of course, the specter of cheating. In every field, you will have a small fraction of papers that have fabrications or other issues. This is inescapable. But what I find even more interesting is the idea of cheating yourself, lying to yourself. It's really easy to fool yourself when doing research. And I'm sure there are many problematic papers where the authors believed what they saw, but ultimately they were just misguided or mistaken. And I think one interesting example that we did not discuss, but I did see mentioned in his papers, is the idea of blinding. Even when doing model 
organism research, you should try to blind yourself to the treatment you're studying as much as possible. If you look at something like lifespan, lifespan measurements, you have to check when the yeast or the worms or whatever model organism you're using died. But there is always an element of subjectivity in this analysis because so far it's usually done by hand. And if you are aware of the treatment you're studying, two things can happen. You can either over or underestimate the impact of your treatment. And this can, of course, affect your results. So for example, you could imagine you were studying the impact of rapamycin and you are aware of the issue of bias and blinding, then you could inadvertently measure lifespans in a way that underestimates the impact of rapamycin just to be safe. And this would be, of course, another bias. So it can go both ways. Although usually I would assume that lack of blinding exaggerates treatment effects. So you probably really want to be methodically rigorous. You want to do really um, strong blinding to prevent biases. So that's perhaps not a bad take home message. ASIC researchers use blinding.